Welcome to The Winsome Creationist, where we explore God's world using a model-building approach, interact with a gracious tone, and take a firm stand on the literal truth of creation found in God's Word. Join host Steve Schramm and occasional guest as they explore the mysteries and majesties from creation to the flood, Babel to the cross, and everywhere in between. And now, here's your host. Have you ever wondered about passages that teach creationism in the New Testament? And why should you be a young earth creationist as far as the New Testament is concerned? Did New Testament authors take issue with things or, or understand things differently than we would today with respect to the Old Testament? These are the kind of questions that we're going to talk through a little bit in this episode of The Winsome Creationist. So I am joined by uh, my new friend, uh, Mark Ward. And um, I'm just excited to have you here, brother. I'd love to turn it over to you to sort of introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about who you are and, uh, and what you do and we're going to talk shop for just a little bit. I'm sitting on the seventh floor. I wish you could see the beautiful image of Bellingham Bay here up in Bellingham, Washington. I work for Logos, Logos Bible Software, also pronounced Logos. Both pronunciations are fine. I'm a senior editor for digital content here. I've been here eight years. I've done a number of different jobs at the company, including academic editor at Lexham Press, working on the Lexham mm -hmm. Survey of Theology and some books by John Frame and some other fun stuff. I was the editor of Bible Study Magazine for two years here. Um, it's wow. been a great place for a Bible nerd to be. I do have some seminary training under my belt, uh, a number of years beyond undergrad in grad <laughs> school. I'll just leave it at that. And I, I, I start. You know, where, where, where do I stop? I'm proud of my family. I have three children. Uh, 13, just turned 12 and nine. They're in a Christian school right now down in Mount Vernon, Washington, where we live about half an hour south of Bellingham. My wife is a micro urban flower farmer. And that wow. has brought so much joy to our family. Micro urban means it's the size of a flower farm that one woman can handle with a little help from her husband as graphic designer and heavy stuff lifter. And I like my power tools. I love my steel combi system power tool. So I'm actually going to mow it all down tonight. It's the end of the season. The first frost just came. Nice. I've, I've written a few things. I used to be a Bible curriculum author for BJU Press. That was a lot of fun. I, I miss that. I miss my colleagues mm -hmm. there, but I've had some great colleagues here at Lagos. And I suppose um, uh, the other big thing about me is the YouTube channel that I run. Um, both of the fans of that YouTube channel would tell you the same thing. I think that it's a, about negatively pushing back against King James onlyism, but positively, and I hope yeah. it's more than more positive, teaching people how to read the King James with understanding, how to understand its archaic English, and mm -hmm. also demonstrating the embarrassment of riches that we have in the many English Bible translations that we possess, especially the major modern evangelical English translations. Those are the ones that I'm always going on about. Why does the ESV differ from the NIV here? You know, how, how should we handle gender language? All the stuff that goes into English Bible translation, I talk a lot about that. Oh, that's great. I mean, you are, you are certainly a dynamic person. You know, I have to say, I, I think probably the most uh, exciting thing about this interview is going to be the fact that I now know that I can safely and without judgment from anyone anywhere pronounce my Bible software, both Logos and Logos, <laughs> and that be okay. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the weight of the world has been lifted off of my shoulder, to be honest. Logos is the Erasmian from Erasmus pronunciation, uh, and it's a pedagogical tool, meaning it's the most helpful way to teach people to, you know, Greek as a language, Koine Greek. Mm. But the way it was actually pronounced in Koine times, it almost certainly was not short O's. And um, today, if you say Logos and people have not studied Greek, they are just as likely to hear L-A-G-A-S. So we yeah. say logos around people who haven't studied Greek and logos around those who have. Wow. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I never would have uh, I never would have imagined that. But hey, it's, it's good to know because uh, I know that uh, that has come up for me quite a few times. So, um, yeah, that, that's cool. And what a cool job. Um, is that you said you were the academic editor? Is that what Mike Kaiser did before he left there, too? Or was it like a similar job or kind of? 
there are there's some overlap. Um, each of us ended up being something like a brand ambassador by being something like a scholar in residence. Uh, I gotcha. consider him to be more of a straight scholar than I am. I am more into popularization, but then he was into that as well quite a lot. So yeah, there's some overlap yeah. there. Hard to explain, but you're right to think that there's some similarities. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, well, uh, a little bit of, uh, you know, this is this for you, this is kind of an intro to, to me too, and sort of what we do around here. So um, I am very much a uh, convinced young age creationist, and there is no shortage, of course, of voices uh, who talk about this subject. Unfortunately, there seems to be a, <laughs> a shortage of people who talk about this subject with um, grace and with clarity and with a focus on not necessarily doing apologetics, but more so a focus on understanding, first of all, that, um, or or I should say what we read in the Bible, right? So we want to first look at, are we understanding the Bible accurately? Yeah. And then assuming we're understanding the Bible accurately, uh, we want to promote a uh, model building approach in the sciences that would take and and attempt not to not to prove that the Bible is true, um, but instead to build on the biblical worldview and understand it from a very dominion mandate, uh, model building scientific perspective. And so that that's a little bit about what we do around here. And uh, I was uh, I was asked to approach you um, by my good friend, uh, Dustin Burlett, uh, who was on the channel. And uh, he, uh, he kind of connected me with you. And uh, boy, there's another just brilliant guy talking about the work that he did on uh, on the ark and and the flood and the salvation motifs there, as opposed to just holding up the the judgment, and he said you got to talk to Mark Ward. You just got to. So I reached out to you, and uh, and this is exciting. So you mentioned that um, uh, the thing that you probably feel most um, you know comfortable with doing on this is really talking about the New Testament passages that confirm you as a creationist. So really, I'd love to just kind of turn it over to you and let you start there, and then we can go back and forth, and maybe that'll bring up some of the other little issues that are a part of that. Yeah, it's similar to what I say about being a Baptist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a credo-Baptist, and I say I'm a Jeremiah 31 Baptist. I think that the New Covenant passage there in Jeremiah 31 says everybody in the New Covenant will know the Lord. They won't have to say to one another, know the Lord. Mm. So it's a funny place to go to be a, uh, a Baptist, but it's similar here where, yeah, Genesis 1 through 11 certainly leads me toward a young earth or young age creationism, but it's the New Testament that to me confirms it. And actually, the first passage that I often think of is Matthew 19. And the Pharisees in the beginning of Matthew 19, I've got the ESV here, they come up to Jesus, they test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And what does he do? He appeals directly to Adam and Eve as not just a something that happened, or even as something that was recorded in scripture but as a normative model, as if the whole point of creation was to set up the way things ought to be. And of course, there are views of Adam and Eve that don't require um, a young age or young earth in order to have a real historical pair. But I've always felt that that at least is uh, you know, divine and it's the word dominical, you know, our Lord tells us by his use of the Old Testament and specifically his use of Genesis 1 through 11, that we ought to regard this as communicating straightforward history. You know, is there figurative language in Genesis 1 through 11? Surely there is. There is all throughout the Bible. But that, sure. that, that can be part of the genre of straightforward history. Also, Jesus' treatment of, you know, Jonah. Uh, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment. You know, he's not treating these Old Testament stories as merely um, models or as fairy tales from which, you know, we, we derive truth from fairy tales all the time. That's why we tell them to our children. He's treating this as something that happened in space-time history. You know, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Um, from the beginning, it was not so. 
he refers to it as the beginning, as Genesis does, and that also seems like an illusion. So that's far from a slam dunk. You know, there are evangelicals I respect. You talk about being winsome. That's one reason I was interested in coming on your program. Um, I, I know some that I love and respect who don't take this view and would still, I think, try to treat Jesus' words of Matthew 19 seriously, find a place for historical Adam and Eve. But yeah. um, that's still where I like to start. I don't, you you yeah. said just take it away, but I, I want to hear your thoughts. You've, you've actually invested more time in this uh, debate than I have in a number of years. Uh, uh, yeah. Do you find yourself going to Matthew 19? Yeah, I, I do. So I think Matthew 19 and, of course, um, uh, Mark 10, 6, we hear that one quoted quite a bit as well, being sort of a parallel passage to that. And, um, you know, this is one of those getting into the specifics of it that I think someone like you could potentially shed some interesting light on because I have heard arguments um, in both directions as to what is meant by that phrase, especially from the beginning, you know, the way that Mark 10, six is, is sort of put is from the beginning of creation. And, and so I, you know, you kind of get this really interesting and kind of bizarre thing to be honest, where, you know, so the the critic of, of young age uh, creationism might want to say, well, if you were actually applying the literal hermeneutic that you claim to be uh, trying to put forward here, then what you would actually do is run into a problem. Because, of course, Adam and Eve weren't created at the very beginning. Like on day one, they were created six days later. Right. And, and so, and I've heard arguments from, I want to say Dr. Terry Mortensen. I think I read a paper of his one time that tried to do some arguing from the Greek that no, there's something about aorist tenses and all this crazy stuff that I don't really know anything about that. I'm sure you do um, where he was making the point that, that yeah, what he's actually saying there is like from the beginning. In other words, it happened at the beginning of creation in such a way that it would be strange if the beginning that was referred to was millions of years actually before Adam and Eve were created. And then you have some on the other side who argue, well, what the text is actually saying is from the beginning of the creation of male and female, they were made male and female. Now, to me, the text doesn't seem to actually say that. That seems contrived. So I find myself going here, yes, but with the reservation that as I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't exactly know what those phrases mean. So do you have some thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I just pulled it up in the Greek in Logos, the Logos Bible study app on my iPhone. And I'm looking at Mark 10, 6. I cannot read that as from the beginning of creation of male and female because the, the words male and female, wish I could show you my screen, but they're both in, well, I don't know how to technical to get. So let's be careful here. Um, yeah. let, let, me, let me zoom back out a little bit. Um, what is the layperson expected to make of the aorist tense and accusative case and dative case and genitive, <laughs> right. all the stuff that grammarians can talk about and somebody like a Terry Mortensen or I could jaw on about in papers. Somehow I don't think it can be obligatory morally or ethically or theologically on lay Christians to whom the Lord has not given the opportunity to study these things. I don't think they can be held accountable for not knowing about them or getting them wrong, right? Do your best as you do in any field to learn as much as you can, to gain as much facility as you can in the concepts. But uh, of course, unless the Lord had told us, everyone's got to learn the originals. Excuse me, you, you are going to be reliant on uh, Bible translators. So how do you do that? How do you not be beholden to anyone? Well, this actually ties into what I've said about the King James on my channel so often and that is that's one reason you do check multiple translations and check translations that are older or in other languages if you check those that are older then they're less likely to be influenced by the creation evolution debate and and actually i think most translators most of the time aren't thinking through okay how do i make sure that i either take this side in this debate or this side or that i don't take a side I think they really are just trying to translate it straight. However, uh, my good friend Vern Poitras, who doesn't quite take my viewpoint on uh, creation evolution, uh, but 
he's certainly no liberal. He has a great chapter in his book, Symphonic Theology, that I assigned to my seminary students at Reformed Baptist Seminary called Words and Precision. And he points out that the kind of exhaustive precision that we sometimes demand of God's word is not of the nature of language to provide, and it's not the, of the nature of scripture to provide either. God could have given more details or could have put a footnote on there or could have clarified for all future you know, disputes. <laughs> this is the viewpoint I'm intending. You know, um, yeah. I think there's a degree to which you just have to give it the commonsensical check. Most translations say, and I'm just going to translate straight from the Greek, from the beginning of creation, male and female, he created them. Even the way that's structured sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? Male and female it created does, yes. them. Yeah. Um, and if you're asking for this exhaustive level of precision, like from the beginning, no, from six days after the beginning or five and a half days after the beginning of creation, male and female, he created them. That sounds like, you know, when Captain Picard would ask Commander Data, um, what time is it? And Data's like telling him down to the millisecond till his voice yeah. is speeding up or something, you know? No, 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 no. You, you have to understand how much level of detail we want. It's actually called relevance theory in language. We, we generally tend to tell people only the level of detail that we expect them to want in the conversation. I think that's what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I agree with that. Uh, and though I agree with it, I am, um, I am very happy to hear from someone like you who very clearly can jam for hours in the nuances of the of the language and and i think that's important because sometimes you know we'll have critics um you know of of our view who i don't know if it's just um just a scare tactic or a show of force or something but you know they they go on and on about how if you understood and interacted with the original languages on a on a regular basis you know you would understand some of these uh nuances and um you know, it's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever uh, watched much of a Jordan Peterson's, you know, work or anything like that, bit. but um, I joke around uh, a little bit because he, uh, so I've been watching the Exodus series uh, that he did with sort of a round table of scholars. And I feel like mm -hmm. if, if you're Jordan Peterson, if you just say the word in some sense and then put like five really <laughs> esoteric words after it. Um, that's all you really need to do to speak Jordan Peterson. And if you're a Jordan yeah. Peterson out there fan, by the way, I'm not, you know, dissing. I mean, I, I like Jordan Peterson. I'm just making the point that watching this roundtable discussion is really fascinating because in this roundtable discussion are also Dennis Prager and yeah. Oz Guinness, right? And and of course, uh, Dennis Prager is a is a very you know religiously devout, from what I understand. Jew and right. Oz Guinness is, is of course a convinced Christian and and social commentator and it's really funny because I'm guessing Dennis from his standpoint of being a nationally syndicated radio host for decades now and Oz of his um you know intimate understanding of culture it's so funny to listen to the rest of the table ramble on in their in their scholarly dialect and then hear one of those two bring it back to just what the text actually says instead of listening for all of the all of the archetypal and literary yeah. genius and masterpiece and it's so cool to see all of those perspectives and they're yeah. they're all important um but to your point they what are. the authors yeah. be intending for this right. text to be communicating to the to the average reader and i think i know we spent a lot of time on this one but i'm glad we did because it, it's one of the most important ones that there is so thank you for that yeah, you're diving into some deep waters here, but the fact is everybody has to swim in these waters even if they don't dive deep. Every Bible reader has to be aware as they grow in maturity. Smart people disagree over the meaning of the Bible. Smart people disagree over the meaning of this passage. People within my very own denominational tradition disagree with this passage. And um, there's a whole lot we could go into. I, I've wanted to write a book for a while called Have You Not Read? that talks about the moral responsibility we have as Bible readers to get it right. Nonetheless, I want to take people off the hook like I did earlier and say that God, you know, could have done it differently. He could have made sure that every single 
you know, um, language group had its own perfect translation of the Bible. So we wouldn't have to go back to the Hebrew and Greek. He was content to do it this way. And I, on the one hand, there's, there's ditches, right? I don't want to say you have to know Greek and Hebrew in order to really understand God's word. And I don't want to say on the other hand, that Greek and Hebrew are meaningless and you should be able to ignore them completely. Like somehow we have to honor the way God did things while still recognizing every one of us will give an account of himself to God. And, and Jesus is going to be able to say to us, have you not read? And what will, what will be, we be responsible for? I think we'll be held, we will be held responsible for the light that we've been given, including our many wonderful English Bible translations. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree. All right. So uh, you said you had a, maybe another passage that we could go to. Yeah. Romans five and Romans 12 are where I tend to go next. Uh, I'll talk about Romans five here. I, I, part of being winsome and, and part of being humble, which I think really go together are, are, is acknowledging when your view has difficulties and right off the bat, these initial paragraphs in Romans five and really the, in my printing of the Bible, the third one starting in verse 12 verses 12 to 14, they're difficult. And mm. you, you want to acknowledge that good people who love the Lord can disagree with you over difficult matters. Yeah. But I read, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted when there is no law. Actually, part of the problem here is it's not a complete sentence. I'm not criticizing the Bible. I'm not saying there is an error there. But yeah. Paul seems to set up a sentence and then not quite finish it right there. Um, he seems to part, perhaps finish it uh, later in that chapter. Um, but the key statements here are that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And then the next phrase is key because this is where I think good Christians can differ. So death spread to all men because all sinned. And of course, the question mm. is, was there animal death before the fall? Um, I think if we just stop at Romans 5 and don't go to Romans 8, we don't get to answer that question fully. But let's hang out in Romans 5. What, what, am I, what, would, I, what would I expect if all I had is Romans 5? It does not specify that animal death came through sin. It does say, in general, death came through sin. Maybe, though, it is a clarification in the next phrase. So death spread to all men. But I've already, I, I, and, and maybe what we're actually, maybe what it's talking about, maybe what Paul is saying is death came to Adam and Eve through sin. And then the next phrase is saying, well, but not just them. It went to all of their offspring. Um, but because of Romans 8 that we'll talk about, and because of the whole story of scripture, I'm inclined to see this passage as saying that death, even animal death, came through sin. And let me, let me talk about that story of scripture for a second. Um, I have been shaped, as we all have, you know, Americans are mutts often when it comes to ethnic roots, like I'm yeah. um, Scottish and Norwegian and Welsh and my wife is Lithuanian, Jewish, and Greek uh, from the island of Samos, and she's got Scottish in there too. Like, I'm just a mix. A lot of us are in the States. Um, I'm, I'm a mixture of influences from different Christian traditions. And when I say that, I do mean Catholic and Orthodox in there somewhere. I'm sure there's some influence, and depending on how you want to define it, maybe going back to the early church, but different evangelical denominations and approaches. Um, the one approach to all of scripture that I have just found myself going back to the most often would be a redemptive historical approach. Um, I think you can get to the same place through a more dispensationalist viewpoint. And indeed, I am some variety of dispensationalist myself. But I think that um, it's been really helpful in the last 20, 25 years for evangelical Christianity in America, the conservative parts of it that I'm familiar with, to realize that the Bible tells one story, a story of creation, fall, redemption. Some people will add consummation or glorification. I don't tend to for reasons I won't get into. I like the three-point you know, outline. I've used it in a 
thick 12th grade textbook for BJU Press, Biblical Worldview, Creation, Fall, Redemption. And I've used yeah. it in a thinner one for sixth graders. If the Bible story is God created the world good, God gave man to rule it as his you know, underlings in his stead and to you know, subdue it and have dominion over it. Sin came into the world then and messed all that up. And through the seed of Abraham promised in Genesis 3.15, we get the ultimately through the Jewish people, the Messiah who comes to put the world to rights, as N.T. Wright likes to say. All that. I don't tell the story the same way he does. I just like that phrase. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then actually to restore his rule, like Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 talk about, then I'm expecting creation to function the way it does in a lot of the literature that we're, we're seeing um, and that come mm-hmm. out of this redemptive historical viewpoint. Namely, creation is the norm. It's the model, just like in Matthew 19. Yeah. And the fall messes that up. So can we imagine that in Genesis 1, when God declares it all very good, and in Romans 5, where it says death comes into the world through sin, is it likely that when you put those things together, the story of Scripture can still make sense if there were millions of years of animal death before Adam and Eve received the special creation of God? That strikes me as a stretch. It, mm-hmm. it seems to complicate the picture. And I'll give one quick illustration. I'll be done with Romans 5, and I invite your thoughts. But... One of my favorite writers is Andy Crouch. He wrote a book called Culture Making, Recovering mm-hmm. Our Creative Calling back in 2008. It's an IVP book. He's actually a Wesleyan Arminian and I am not, but he uses the creation, fall, redemption, meta-narrative, a big story of scripture to talk about the Christian involvement in culture in a way that I think is really healthy and helpful. It's played out in several of his other books, including Playing God, which was excellent, Redeeming the Gift of Power. That was the subtitle there. And then his book, Strong and Weak. I'm a big Andy Crouch fan. Hmm. In his book, Culture Making, he uses Genesis in the way I just did. Creation becomes a set of norms that we end up needing to discover and then follow throughout time. Um, The fall twists and bends and occasionally breaks these creational norms, but they tend to come springing back, like one of my friends said, you try to shove a, a, a beach ball, an inflated one underneath you in a pool and you can't do it. It'll pop back up. That's the way creation is. But then Andy Crouch has this like three or five page section, a little interlude where he talks about Genesis 1 through 11 and dismisses a young earth reading, a young age reading, um, dismisses a straightforward reading of it and says, oh, of course, you know, we don't accept that. The very reading that it sure seems to me he relies on in the rest of the book, or else this doesn't make sense. How could creation serve as a norm if it didn't actually all happen this way? Um, So I'd rather just accept the difficulties that come along with that. I can't give all the scientific explanations. That's not my field. I've tried to learn, try to be responsible, but I'm willing to say this this model makes the best sense of my New Testament and Old Testament together. And that's why I accept it. So your thoughts on Romans 5. Yeah. I mean, I uh, first of all, I, I can appreciate the three-point outline. You are, after all, a Baptist, as you said. Yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know that it's possible to do more than three points in a sermon. So um, that's just all I've ever known. I appreciate that approach. Um, I, yeah. I, I love this idea of creation as the norm. And isn't that what we see alluded to? throughout the Old Testament as well, even in the passages um, like in Isaiah and, uh, of course, as we move into the New Testament in Revelation as well, actually talking about sort of that restoration. And it's so so odd because you find that some people accept that view, but what they do is they they say it's not a return to Eden. They don't couch it as a a return to, to Eden. As, yeah. as perhaps we might put it, but just instead talk about the fact of, <clears throat> of restoration, not the place that we came from uh, right. before. Right. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, there are some things where arguably you can tell that uh, the Christian idea of heaven or, or hell, for example, are um, perhaps, perhaps more than anything um, being applied from, literature 
right? Like Dante's Inferno or something mm-hmm. like that. And sometimes eschatology um, people, and I, I'm not here to bash anyone's view of eschatology, but uh, it's like, even if you uh, hold a premillennial eschatology, uh, premillennialism is not the same thing as the left behind books. And yet how many uh-huh. sermons have I heard preached that, that right. were from the premillennial perspective and what they preached was actually left behind. Right. And yeah. so, so without a doubt, we do get our understanding, unfortunately, in modern Christian culture of some of these larger archetypal things we do get from fiction. It does not seem to me, though, that we get this creation, fall, redemption narrative handed down to us from some uh, work of fiction that we have then applied to it, even right. like Parad- Paradise Lost or anything like that. It seems to me that this is something that fundamentally comes straight from our reading of the text and when we try to violate this we get really weird things happening um like for example um not like 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 having to deal with the fact that humans seem to be and animals vegetarians at the end of genesis 1 so much so that after the flood god says i literally just read this passage in my daily bible reading um but he says that just like I have given you all the plants of the earth, you know, to eat, now I'm giving you the the meat to eat as well. And so you you end up with these really, really strange things where you have to then say, well, this is not like this is definitely what the text says. It's just not what the text means. And it's hard for me to know what to what to do with that. Um yeah, any it, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I have I've drunk from the stream that goes back through a Dutch theologian who's gotten more popularity in recent years named Herman Bobink. Um, Crossway has put out mm-hmm. some of his works. Um, Baker Academic has done so as well. Evangelicals are pretty happy about him right now. Um, he was a winsome guy. And his big phrase is grace restores nature. And mm-hmm. I actually do not know exactly what his views on creation and evolution are. I haven't gotten that far. I've not read that for a while, but that word restores is so interesting and so key. It's so useful. You look, I'm looking at Isaiah 11, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That eschatological passage about the righteous branch, the shoot coming forth from the stump of Jesse, so beautiful, such poetic language. Mm -hmm. If that is a new thing the Lord has never done, why does uh, grace restoring nature uh, become so compelling for so many Bible readers? I, I think you have to view um, at least much of what we see in Genesis 1 to 2 as the norm toward which, you know, we're returning, um, or, or, or the norm that we're restoring. But I think it makes the best sense to say, well, there was a time when the wolf did dwell with the lamb and carnivores sure. weren't eating the uh, other animals. I, I think it's easier to say that. And I suppose that's a good transition to Romans 8. I mean, mm-hmm. my argument is actually really simple here. And I don't, I don't um, live in this debate. So um, I, I want to be careful not to claim that I'm taking the straightforward reading of the passage and of the whole Bible and that no other evangelical has any justification whatsoever for disagreeing with this. I'm kind of taking what I would still call a commonsensical view. The way I've approached the Bible for my entire life, you know, and it's not an accident that one of the, you know, I, I've been in younger type circles my entire life, but but I've never felt like reading my Bible made that made that model of Bible interpretation more difficult for me. I've always felt like it it is. Um, the deliverances of modern science that make it more difficult, the the difficulty of starlight and time or the position of individual fossils and whatever strata, those complicate my ability to read 
according to the model I've accepted. But the Bible itself doesn't seem to do that for me. Um, so I come to Romans 8 and I see Paul in this awesome passage saying that he considers the sufferings of this present time as not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. And then here come key words for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let's just talk for a second about what that bondage is and when it came. It sure seems to me that the best sense I can make of this connects it back to Romans 5 and the bondage that comes in, the futility and the groaning that we'll read about in a little bit in a couple verses had to have come in not at the original creation, not only because Genesis 1 says that God affirmed that everything in his creation was very good, but also because although this phrase is difficult, the creation was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it. Like who's the him? Mm -hmm. I believe people argue, is it God or is it Adam? Um, either way, it seems as if there was a time in the past when it was subjected to futility. Previously, yes. it had not faced that futility. This is somewhat poetic or picturesque language, but I feel like it does get more specific when it says, let's see here. Uh, well, we talk about the word whole. Well, I'm, I'm now I'm looking for the uh, passage where it says, oh, duh, it's right here. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Um, pains of childbirth, I don't think that means he's talking about all of creation being mammalian, right? Um, right. Oh, of course. I, I think pains of childbirth there has a dual reference, one to the, um, well, this is a theme throughout scripture, a pain that itself leads to pleasure. That is of the child being born, and the you know the the mother forgets about that pain. Although my wife hasn't exactly forgotten, she's glad to have the yeah. children for sure. Um, <laughs> I think the second part of the reference is just to physical pain. What what is the whole creation groaning about? Mm -hmm. Well, what else could it be but the pain and death that animals face? Because I'm saying, uh, Adam and Eve brought sin and therefore death into the world and mm -hmm. and that zebra was you know was the the last dead animal i saw beaten being eaten by other animals was a zebra in some you know youtube video that zebra <laughs> during those moments of pain when it's the flesh of its throat is being ripped open and its blood is spurting out and the hyenas are surrounding him or her i, I didn't check um I've always read the groaning as that. Yeah. And what does the Bible say the solution is? Not only the creation, but we ourselves, we groan in, inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our own bodies. Mm. So the eschatological hope that we have for resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits. We will be like him at his coming. That hope for redemption will bring in redemption and i would say restoration for the rest of creation yeah i do think you can use these passages to support i i think you can believably deny that romans 5 is talking about animal death as well mm -hmm. i find it more difficult to deny that romans 8 is referring to animal death and why would why would our redemption have anything to do with their salvation, their redemption? And why would their subjection to futility have anything to do with us unless we can tell the story of scripture that we've been telling in this discussion, namely God's creation, man's fall, bringing in death and pain and groaning. And then yeah. Christ's redemption, ultimately bringing full salvation to the entire planet. Yeah, I have to. I I have to agree. 
it's one of the interesting things. Like I, I think you're right. I think that Romans five, and this is even an area where um, modern creationists, for sure, have um, have given up. You know, fighting for this necessarily, right? They have, um, they have, they have submitted as you have that this passage in Romans five is probably talking just about human death. And then they would make the same move that you did and, and move into Romans eight to, um, to capture that. And so I think that's accurate. I think it's fair to say that death itself back to Romans 12 entered the creation as a result of Adam's sin. It, it, to me, it is very, very hard um, not to read that as sort of the, uh, at the risk of sounding esoteric, the ontological thing that is death, right? If we mm-hmm. if we're discussing this uh, this object that is death, it seems like that thing is the plague that was introduced at creation, um, and and I think at there fall. it could yeah at the excuse me at the fall of course yes, and 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 of course from there it spread. Um, I think Romans eight definitely is a is more confirming of that 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 we're waiting for the restoration of the whole creation. Um, if this isn't w- what it means, then I'm sort of curious what one would say that this passage is talking about. It, it, t- it takes a lot of time. It's very patient. It's very beautifully written to explain what's going on. And it's hard to see what it could mean other than what you have described. And, and as you were talking, it made me think about something that I think is very interesting. I, I recently on the channel here, um, I posted a video that it was a video response to another video that me and a friend had recorded a few years ago. And um, I put it up just recently and we, he was going through these objections, various objections against the young earth creationism. Um, the video was by inspiring philosophy uh, here on YouTube, Mike, uh, Mike Jones. And so he was talking about uh, various reasons why it's not necessarily clear that death was not introduced before the fall uh, for, for or, or the death. Yeah, well, that the creationists are wrong on this point. And he was talking about how even the Bible says that the tree of life is basically how they stayed alive and that man was not created immortal, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I'm like, you know, he's going into all these little things, and I, I finally zoomed out. I said, I think what he's trying to say here is that the scriptures could be read in such a way as to suggest that at least animal death was possible before the fall. That's what I think he's trying to say. And I'm like, okay, well, let's grant that for a moment. The question in my mind is, did the biblical writers and their originally, you know, their original intended audience, believe that death was an actuality before the fall. And I just don't see that in scripture. I think the best case that you could possibly make is that death was possible, but I don't think you could show that death was actual. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but I I think it's interesting that the first instance of animal death recorded in scripture happens directly after the fall. where they are covering up with those skins um, and, and basically yeah. hiding themselves from God. I agree. Yeah. So um, I found, I find that very, very fascinating. And it ties into another thought, which is that just, this is a more general thought, but my, my friend Doug pointed this out that I think as you look at the whole of scripture, again, the best case that an old earth creationist could make is that they could, they could possibly reinterpret the scriptures to be consistent with their view, possibly. But I don't think yeah. anyone could read the scriptures and come away with something like a 4.5 billion year old earth and a 14 billion year old cosmos, right? I think the best case is it would be consistent with that. But right. the young earth creationist does have the advantage of at various points throughout the timeline being able to say this does seem to be the plain straightforward reading. So I think that plays into all of those all of those things you were just pointing out. Gavin Ortland is somebody I really respect. I've read several of his books. I enjoyed Finding the Right Hills to Die On. He's thought carefully about how and when to be charitable, 
to other Christians in disagreement, and he does model it on his channel, Truth Unites. And he had a video just a couple of weeks ago pleading with young earth creationists not to be triumphalists. Uh, he is not one. He, I think he used to be. In, um, but his reading of Augustine especially, and, you know, he has the chops for this. He's really done the homework. Shows that it, it doesn't have to be modern Darwinian theory that pushes some Bible readers and faithful Bible readers and skillful ones away from a young earth perspective. And I, I have to acknowledge the power of living with a model your whole life. Um, I acknowledge, therefore, my limitations. I find it very difficult to step into the shoes of somebody like an N.T. Wright, who just comes at the New Testament from such a different perspective from mine. You know, praise the Lord, we share some uh, important beliefs, but I like almost physically find it difficult yeah, to, yeah. to make my brain see it the way he does. Um, I want to acknowledge maybe my own finiteness is making me a young earth proponent. Um, maybe it's because I've grown up with it. I think it's humble and right um, to recognize that possibility. But I take comfort in the final judgment of God and I, I look to him and I cast myself on his mercy. My hermeneutics, such as they are, my Bible interpretation are an aspect of my sanctification. And, mm. and wherever they're good, they're gifts of God. Wherever my hermeneutics are bad, they're my own fault. And I, I think I can say before the Lord now, I'm trying to read this faithfully, um, mm. despite the difficulties that it does present for me. You know, where, where do I feel like there's pressure on me? Because I do live in the more evangelical academic biblical studies world. I haven't actually had people mocking me or pushing me on this. But you, you feel it in the air that young earth approaches are just kind of looked down upon. Um, but I've listened to John Walton and I've actually, I'm actually reading, reviewing a book by his co-author on the lost world of Genesis 1. Um, I've listened to Tremper Longman. Uh, whose commentaries I appreciate very much. Um, I've tried to listen to Vern Poitras. I, I'm just not able to make myself step into those shoes. I'm trying to be yeah. faithful before the Lord to his word. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, and, and what more can we do? Um, if we're doing our best and trying to be faithful, then that will be rewarded. And um, this is why humility, winsomeness, respect, towards those who disagree, um, that's the approach that we're taking, right? And I think it is a much more, uh, it's certainly a more peaceful approach. Um, that is something I can certainly say, having been on the other side of this, it's much more peaceful to uh, come at it with um, with humility. Well, I know we're getting close to time, and I want to I be respectful of, of your time. Um, did you have a, another portion of scripture that you wanted to go to, or have you said most of what you uh, had in mind? I said all of what I had in mind, it's stimulating and interesting for me to hear you talk about Revelation. And we could certainly talk about Revelation. We could talk about Isaiah. There's way more to talk about in Genesis, but we talk, We said we'd talk about the New Testament. Yeah. Um, for yeah. me, it's Matthew 19, Romans 5, Romans 8. And we're kind of building up there to the strongest passage. And again, I would see that yeah. as Romans 8. Well, if, if you'll humor me. So I, I, I appreciate this, this approach. Um, I would like to maybe run one thing Old Testament related by you, if you have just a moment. Sure. So, so um, I've been reading. Um, there, for some reason, you know how these things just sort of happen in cycles, and uh-huh. uh, for some for some reason, there have been recently a few different contexts um, where the uh, where the flat Earth notion has come up again. Um, it, uh, people who actually believe it, people who believe that the ancients believed it. I don't know how much you've looked into this or studied this. I'm actually reading a book right now by Danny Faulkner that approaches this from a both a historical standpoint and an astronomical standpoint. Um, Danny Faulkner is an astronomer with Answers in Genesis, and so he's right. written some some books uh, on this. And so he he wrote one called Falling Flat that I'm I'm currently reading. Um, it's quite popular now. You said you've read Walton, you've read Longman, and you know it, it, it's quite popular to to buy into this idea that um, that for the biblical writers we did have sort of 
a flat earth uh, a kind of idea, three-tiered cosmos kind of thing. And I don't know if you have any <clears throat> thoughts about that or you've studied that or the, the, the one thing, let me just be more specific so that, so that we can drill into something w with some meat on it. Um, the thing that bothers me about this is on the one hand, you have from these folks, you, you know, you hear this idea that if you're a young earth creationists, uh, if you're a young earth creationist, you are reading the Bible in a, in a, in a sort of a wooden literal, yeah. yes, fashion, uh, of course. Um, and then when I hear verses given in justification for either the view that the Bible teaches a flat earth and we should be flat earthers or the view that the Bible doesn't teach a flat earth, but that was their worldview. It seems to me they point to verses that say things about the four corners of the earth right. or the four winds, et cetera. And yet the model that they prescribe to is actually a circular model because the Lord looks down on the circle of the earth. And so I keep coming back to this fact that it seems to me that they are the ones who have adopted this overly literalistic view where there seem to be plausible, highly plausible even, um, uh, interpretations of those particular passages that perhaps they're just suggesting something like four directions uh, in, in different areas or something like that. Or So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that specific thing. I know that might be a little out of your wheelhouse, but maybe you have some interest in it. I don't know. No, uh, hermeneutics is my wheelhouse, and I'm totally with you there. I think that's a really good insight. I'm nervous about N.T. Wright and John Walton and their appeals to Second Temple Judaism and the ancient Near Eastern you know, milieu, respectively, and their willingness to use those to overturn what have now become traditional Reformation Protestant readings of various passages in Scripture. I feel like we want to take on board as much wisdom as we can by understanding the historical context. I, I think, you know, conservatives and young earthers recognize we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the, of the original readers as much as we can. But I, I observe that if you set up the, the contrast as here's a bunch of people who read the Bible literalistically versus here's a bunch of people who appreciate metaphor like count up the metaphors in the bible where are they all um they're everywhere everywhere yeah of course everywhere human language is at its like at its core level there are tons and tons and tons of metaphors in fact well that's, you just I used think, a couple in the in yeah the exactly at the core level and the metaphor level. itself is a metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forget actually what the etymology is there, but it's like setting some, bearing something together with something else. I think um, the, I don't. I, I remember my pastor uh, who had a massive impact on me pointing out, okay, so you know the liberals of the late nineteenth century were saying that it basically implied that people back in ancient days were dumb. And, you know, they didn't realize that virgins didn't give birth <laughs> and, and uh, they didn't realize that Jesus had just swooned on the cross and wasn't actually dead. Right. And sure, they didn't have some of the same medical tools that we have. They didn't have ultrasound machines for, um, you know, looking at baby Jesus in the womb. They didn't, they didn't have brainwave monitors, but, but actually the average ancient adult probably had a better knowledge of death than I do because I've rarely, if ever seen it outside of the funeral home in a embalmed, you know, makeup uh, corpse. I don't really, yeah. I don't touch it. I don't live it. Um, and they knew that virgins didn't have babies. They weren't dummies. I feel the same when I read the Old Testament. I see the sophistication of the literary devices. And I see the incredible uh, wide range of metaphors that are used. I just can't believe that they were such simple people that they would write uh, metaphors like the four corners of the earth, but be beholden to them, right? Like if we can say that and understand what we mean, then they can understand, they can, they can do the same thing. I, I, I feel like John Walton, um, I have not done enough work. My best friend has. I've done some papers on it and I've listened to those, but I haven't done enough work, enough work to go toe to toe with them. When I heard him at a conference years ago that became a book, like a four views book, 
um, I did recognize he's the up and coming guy. He's the one who's bringing the approach that evangelical Christians who are looking for a way mm-hmm. to get away from the embarrassment of being younger. You know, I don't want to say, I don't want to say like that's their, that's the motive of all of them, but I think that's sure. the motive of some. John Walton's going to be a useful priest for that particular, uh, mediating that particular uh, possibility. Those who are genuinely struggling and only God knows what struggles count as genuine and what don't. Um, I'm afraid of him getting near them because I'm wary of how willing he is to use creative new readings to overturn what seems to me to be reasonably straightforward. Yeah. Well, that, that's a great place to, a great way to put it. And I, um, I, because I'm not a scholar, um, I am, I am a very interested popularizer more than anything. I'm a business person. And so uh, I am just trying to use the tools and the marketing and the, the web and the tools that are available to me to help get some of these things out there. But I have to say, I take comfort in the fact that there are peers of, say, the likes of Walton who disagree with his readings on things and can give their reasons why. And I appreciate that. And I think that's part of that idea of moving from the milk to uh, to the meat. And in fact, this is one of the things that I am so passionate about as a creationist, as a popularizer as well, is um, helping my fellow creationist brothers and sisters um, realize that the Bible, in in a sense, does not need to be um, defended. Not that I'm against apologetics. I am a huge apologetics fan. Uh, But the Bible uh, does not need to, in a sense, be protected from these other readings and these other. Uh, in- instead, what we want to do, I I think, is um, be exploratory in in nature. Take take what seems to be the right uh, again readings, um, and, and and take and go out from there and explore in nature and see what it means. And I, I'm 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 okay with sometimes dealing with difficulty. I don't. In other words, I don't mind under uh, uh, turning over the next stone in the ancient Near Eastern worldview saga and say, okay, well, how does Israel fit in that picture? They are, after all, an ancient Near Eastern people, but they are clearly a distinct ancient Near Eastern people. And so I'm I'm not, I don't get worried in a sense when a scholar like Walton comes on the scene and says, hey, here's how we should be understanding this instead. Um, I am open to exploring it. And, uh, but at the same time, realizing that we have a, there's a foundational bedrock, a, a view that has been held for thousands of years now in the young earth creationist position. And I don't think it can be so easily uh, overturned. And so I, um, I think we should be gracious to those who disagree and we can appreciate their work and be open to hearing them out um, even though we disagree. And we should still, of course, maintain our reasons for disagreement and, um, be sound Bible scholars to the extent that uh, the Lord has given us the ability to do so. So Dustin um, Burlett said you'd be like this and that's why I wanted to come. <laughs> I, everything you just I said means that. so much to me. I do think that in public debate, you win as, as many people through your respectful tone as you do through the actual content. And hopefully they're going together, right? You want the, truth and love to jive well um i don't want to attract the kind of people that would come to me if i were bombastic i don't want them i want people who (laughs) read their bibles and see that um because of our fallenness and finiteness we've got to maintain humility because of god's command we have to maintain love for our opponents and yet we are responsible before god to, to read his word and come to the most accurate interpretation that we can so we can be obedient disciples. Amen. Uh, amen. I could not have said it any better. Um, and, and you, my friend, are most certainly uh, welcome back, and I will be inviting you back. Hopefully uh, you'll be able to make some time because I'm sure we have a lot more that we could talk about. You're the exact kind of guest that we want to have on this channel. Um, and so uh, I love it. I appreciate it. Um, Mark, where you mentioned your YouTube channel. Um, is that the best place to go to like support your ministry, find your ministry? 
yeah, absolutely. Mark Ward on words or just search, search for Mark Ward KJV and ignore the attack videos that paint, put my face on the cover in lurid colors, you know. Uh, I've got lots of videos on YouTube, probably too many. Don't watch them all. Just if, yeah. just the ones with jokes. There's some funny ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you have a uh, fantastic personality and a clear love for the Lord. So appreciate you, my friend. And um, we'll talk again soon. Thank you.